even if I remove my commissioner of education, I have uh, four kids, five and under. Um, we have uh, uh, three-month-old twins. Um, we're very blessed. And um, <laughs> uh, you know, you know, commissioner, you can't fix crazy. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I wish they had pulled me aside in middle school and told me how this happens. Um, <laughs> the, um, you're, you're living in the wrong state. Uh, <laughs> I'm Evan Smith, the CEO of the Texas Tribune, and you're listening to Conversations with the Texas Tribune, a rebroadcast of the Tribune's extended sit-downs with the most interesting, influential, and iconic figures in politics and public policy. This week, the future of public and higher education in Texas. If you're a policymaker dealing with top-of-the-agenda issues like school finance, accountability, attainment, university admissions, affordability, graduation rates, and the demand for a workforce that can meet the challenges of our booming economy, well, you've got a full plate, and there's no time to waste. We need state leaders to focus intently and immediately on making sure our students, from pre-K through 16 and beyond, get the best preparation necessary for thoughtful and productive citizenship. But are we setting them up for success? Are we giving teachers, schools and school districts, community colleges and public university campuses, not to mention parents and kids of all ages, all they need? That is the test for the new Texas. To discuss whether we'll pass or fail the test, we convened an all-star panel at this year's Texas Tribune Festival. John King, the former U.S. Secretary of Education, Texas Education Commissioner Mike Morath, and Raymond Paredes, the state's higher education commissioner. I had the pleasure of moderating. Our conversation was recorded live on Friday, September 28, 2018, at St. David's Episcopal Church in Austin. Conversations with the Texas Tribune is presented by Raise Your Hand Texas, reinventing public education for the future because the future of Texas is in our public schools. More at RaiseYourHandTexas.org. And by the Texas Association of Community Colleges, advocates for 50 community college districts and the more than 700,000 students they serve. Learn more at TACC.org. So let, let me start big. Big as in pull back to satellite view, Commissioner Morath, let me begin with you. I want you to look into the future and imagine what the big picture will be for Texas in 2050. I talked about some statistics that are predicted mostly rather than certain about the population and everything else. What do you in your mind's eye believe the world you will be confronting in public education will look like in 2050? Well, uh, scale is a huge, a huge challenge in Texas. We have 1,200 school systems today. Um, so that's 1,200 school boards, 1,200 um, district leaders, uh, covering 8,600 campuses, uh, 5.3 million kids. And when you talk about fast-forwarding the future, almost all of those numbers are essentially going to double um, in, uh, uh, or, or grow in some substantial capacity. So you don't know that you're going to be at, if you're at 5.3 now, you don't know that you're going to be at 10.6. The fact that the population doubles doesn't mean that the enrollment that, doubles. That's right. And, and certainly the number of school systems likely won't double, but the number of campuses that they operate is going to grow substantially. The number right. of teachers that we will need to have um, to educate our eager young minds will grow. The fiscal pressure um, to fund all of that will continue to grow, um, as it has, as the state has added uh, between uh, 50 and 80,000 kids a year to our public education system for about the last uh, decade. Right. 
Um, so, you know, you think about that, that's, uh, that's almost the size of Austin ISD coming into existence um, every single year. Right. And, um, and so the, um, the challenges that we have today, the challenge of finding quali qualified um, educators and keeping them in the classroom and supporting them effectively as they love on our young people, the challenges of ensuring that our curricular systems um, work in, with the earliest learners to prevent gaps from being full, uh, formed so that we don't have to remediate extensively in upper grades. The challenge of ensuring that our secondary um, systems are fully linked to our post-secondary systems. Um, our challenge of ensuring an equitable floor that everyone has access to rigorous education. All those challenges just grow in size. Right. And, um, but you, you think about what is happening on the grounds in schools all over the state of Texas and the, the progress that our educators are making um, to, to iterate, to get better, faster than ever before. Uh, I'm, I'm left with optimism. I, I mean, I think it's entirely plausible but that by the year 2050, that 20% of Texas high school students are going to graduate with an associate's degree at the same time that they graduate with a high school diploma. Right. That is entirely possible. Very hopeful. And, and that has significant impacts on the cost of uh, higher education, has significant impacts on the degree of preparation um, our citizens have for both participation in the republic and participation, you know, and living lives of purpose and productivity. Right. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful, but, um, but the challenges are legion, and we shouldn't, um, we shouldn't um, think that this is going to be easy. And the challenges rest on this sort of backdrop of where we are in our modern culture, which is to think about teaching, the most, perhaps the most single important profession in America as a profession that is summed up with a cliche, those who can do, those who can't teach. And there is no more toxic view of a profession than that. Right. That is like, you know, if you were able to breeze through college and, and you know, you've got some kind, of, some kind of degree, let's put you in charge of a, of a classroom and give you, you know, no, no effective support, uh, uh, not, not an effective uh, uh, compensation to support your professional growth. Like this, this challenge of shifting our mindset related to the profession so that we and we honor teachers not as just missionaries, but we honor them as dedicated professionals. And that our entire system right. is organized to reward them as such. Like, these are huge challenges. I want to come back to the teacher piece because we've talked about this many times. I know how much you believe that the answer to almost any question about the future of education is teacher retention training and recruitment, right, in some fashion. Commissioner Paredes, uh, Mr. Morath just handed you the baton in talking about the linkage between what he's doing and what you're doing. He's got 5.3 million now. You've got about how many? 1.6. 1.6. Do you have a sense any more than he does about whether a doubling in the population will necessarily mean a doubling in your enrollment in higher ed? I hope that it'll more than double in more the, than uh, double. the next 30 years. Uh, we're way behind leading states in terms of the percentage of students that go directly to college from high school. Yeah. We're way behind other states in our graduation rates, and we're way behind in the percentage of our adult population that holds a college credential and gets the kinds of jobs that those kinds of credentials lead to. Yeah. I mean, Commissioner Morath, I will hear from TEA and from the state of Texas, you know, generally speaking, good news. It can be argued about whether it's entirely, you know, as it appears, but good news about graduation rates. The completion rates in higher ed are nothing to write home about. No. Right? Why is that? And how does that not become a structural deficit that you have to figure out uh, a solution for going forward? In other words, He's at least starting in a good place looking ahead 30 years. You're starting kind of in a bad place by your own acknowledgement. 
Well, we're not starting in a bad place. We're starting, uh, we're starting behind other states, but we're making substantial progress. Let, let, me, let me express a, a belief that I have there I think will make a huge difference. I think the big story in Texas education in the year 2050 will be the extraordinary strides that have been made by Latino students. I think most people in this room know that to a very large extent, the economic future of Texas, the quality of life in Texas, is highly dependent on whether we do a significantly better job of educating Latinos. By the year 2050, Latino workers will outnumber Anglo workers three to one in Texas. That's across, that's across all areas of op occupation. Obviously, we don't want uh, uh, the bulk of those workers uh, in menial jobs, uh, uh, middle wage jobs that really don't lead uh, to the kind of career and quality of life that we all aspire to. I see some, some evidence that Texas is making some dramatic improvements in Latino educational outcomes, starting uh, in elementary school and going through high school and going into college. And I think we have a, we, we have, we'll have a good story. Of course, the rate of college completion, we've talked about this many times, for the Latino student population in higher ed is about half of what it is for the Anglo population, right? It's That's one in five correct. after six years for the Anglo population. is closer to one in 10 for the That's Latino correct. population. So that is an area where you see opportunities for improvement. Yeah, one of, the reasons, <laughs> one of the reasons I feel optimistic about the future is because we have a long way to no go. No place to go but up, right? <laughs> yeah, I understand. Right. Uh, Mr. Secretary, <laughs> I, I imagine you in the position of, of leading the Department of Education, you're really running 50 different uh, education entities in essence, right? I mean, you're not, there's not one size fits all, right? One, this is less a blanket than a quilt. That, that's right, yeah, 50 states, 13,000 school districts, right. that's exactly right. What does the federal government have to do with the success of a state like, you know, Texas loves the federal government, loves the federal government. <laughs> not every state loves the federal government the way Texas loves the federal government, but, but how do you work with the states to ensure that they get out of the education system what they and their residents need? Well, if you think back to the original function of the federal role in education, it's really the Elementary and Secondary Education Act of 1965, signed by Lyndon Johnson in front of the one-room schoolhouse he attended here in Texas. And the theory was that the federal government should direct resources to the highest needs kids. That's what drives the Title I program. So one is to try to bring the resources of the country to bear to try to improve outcomes for the highest needs kids. The other role of the department has always been civil rights protection and civil rights enforcement and making sure that students, regardless of race or gender, are protected um, while they're in school. And that's still the job. Right. Uh, I would say now, at this moment, the challenges that the two commissioners described, those are the national challenges. A majority of kids in the nation's public schools are kids of color. A majority of the kids in the nation's public schools are eligible for free or reduced price lunch. If we fail to educate students of color and low-income students, we have no future as a country. That simple. And so the role of the federal government, from my perspective, should be to put in place incentives and supports that make it easier uh, for uh, these commissioners and the rest to do their jobs. And that means we ought to be putting a lot more federal resources to support early learning. Uh, we ought to be putting federal resources to incentivize folks to think differently about how schools are designed to try to tap the passions of high school students so that they can find the things they're interested in, whether that's career and technical education or getting that community college degree while they're in high school. Um, 
And we ought to be doing more on the higher ed side to incentivize and support work on completion. The federal government provides a huge amount of resources right. through the Pell Grant program to support low-income students going to college. But all the incentives today for higher ed are around maximizing enrollment, not maximizing completion. Right. And unless we improve our college attainment, we're not only going to struggle domestically, we're going to struggle internationally. We used to be first in the world in college completion. Now we're somewhere around 10th, 11th, 12th, depending on the analysis. Well, the state of Texas has for the last years, maybe it's a couple decades, pivoted the conversation from inputs to outputs in terms mm -hmm. of that, that we need to be mm -hmm. measuring success in terms of accomplishment, not enrollment, say, right? So to, to your That's point. Right. I heard you use the phrase, enable states to succeed. You can't, or enable them to do their jobs. Mm -hmm. The federal government can't and should not do the jobs of states for them, right? You can't ultimately affect attainment. You ultimately can't affect graduation rates. You can't affect college completion, except to give the resources to states to do that job themselves. That's right, and to, and to set up the right incentives, the right guardrails to right. make sure that, that the focus is on the right thing. So one of the mistakes that the federal government has made over the last few decades has been to ignore the issue of completion and to send billions of dollars in Pell Grants to universities that graduate virtually none of their students, or worse, leave them with tons of debt and no degree. Um, those institutions shouldn't be able to collect federal dollars. The right. federal government ought to protect students and taxpayers. And so that, that, that exemplifies what the federal government needs to do more. That's not a good situation going forward in any case as we get toward 2050. That's right. The federal government has to be vigilant that right. the dollars are well used. Commissioner Paredes, uh, one of the interesting population trends that I've been watching is the rapid urbanization of Texas. You know, the, those of us who lived here long enough have heard the phrase, the Texas myth, you know, we're a ranching state, we're a rural state, we're an agriculture state. It's no longer even remotely the case. 77% of the population of Texas now lives east of I-35. We have six of the 20 largest cities in the country in Texas more than any other state. We are, for all practical purposes, an urban state. That whole urban versus rural fight is over urban one, right? <laughs> so the fact that that is likely to continue, we're going to be more of an urban state and more of an urban population. What does that tell you about higher ed going forward? How do we think about higher ed differently as a consequence of that? The, clearly, I think the, uh, the future of higher education is more uh, online uh, courses, more online degrees, where people living in remote areas have the same access to higher education that people in larger or, uh, urban areas Because it's a do. good idea or because the opportunities in rural areas are going to be on the decline? Well, I think it's a good idea, and it's also an essential idea. Practical. Yes. Rural broadband access concern you as an issue? If you're going to try to go to school in rural areas of Texas and yet you can't get access to adequate broadband to do it, that seems to defeat the point, doesn't well, it? Well, we, I was going to say in this last legislative session, the legislature allocated $25 million um, to bring down $250 million in federal funds. And so we're well on our way to something like 99% of school systems in the state of Texas having access to fiber optics um, connectivity at their local school. School districts is, or school systems is good, but but in their homes where kids do homework at night, for instance. Also necessary. There's a little bit of a, of a gap. Commissioner Morath, I'll ask you the same question. Urban public education is not exactly the same as public education. So if you know that you've got a rapidly urbanizing state, what does that tell you about what public ed needs to do over the next 30 years? 
Well, I mean, the, a lot. Um, although I don't think we should lose sight of the fact that Texas is still the largest educator of rural school children in the United States. Even uh, with the rapid urbanization. Yeah, I mean, we have something like 800,000 kids in rural schools in the state of Texas. That's more than that's more kids than in half the states in the in the country. And those are just the kids in a rural setting. Um, the, but, you know, when I, actually one of the, the it, this gets back to sort of all roads lead back to supporting our teachers effectively. That I, um, you know, I spent four and a half years on a, a big city school district and saw the challenges that, that, um, that our, our big urban school systems face. One of, the, one of the key challenges is recruiting and retaining as well as supporting your teachers in these schools with concentrations of students in poverty. Yeah. But I actually see that exact same challenge in rural Texas where they'll post a job offer and they will literally not get a single applicant. Um, and so if, if you think about it as sort of a U shape, you know, the suburbs have, have it best in Texas in terms of attracting and retaining talent. Um, they get the folks who were trained in the urban center and then they move to the suburbs. The, um, the, the, the high poverty schools and the rural schools have this canary in the coal mine of, of you know, what are we doing to support teachers? What are we doing to recruit our best and brightest minds to work in the field um, and to stay um, in those settings? Right. I want to say to you, Mr. Secretary, you have a perspective different from Commissioner Predis and Commissioner Morath in that you ran a major school system that included many of the most challenged and challenging urban school districts in the country, right? So you understand this perspective, uh, have a perspective on this from the ground level, not just from the balcony view or the satellite view. So what does a rapidly urbanizing environment for all of us in Texas ultimately mean to the future of public and higher ed? Well, a few things. I mean, I, I, I agree with Mike that the focus has to be on teacher quality. Ultimately, what school is is the relationship between teachers and students and the work in which they are engaged. Right. That's, that's school. Um, you know, I always tell folks, the only reason I'm sitting here today is because I had a series of amazing New York City public school teachers who quite literally saved my life. Both my parents passed away when I was a kid. Uh, my mom when I was eight, my dad when I was 12. I could very easily be dead or in prison today, but I'm here, got, you know, got those degrees when I was slacking because <laughs> of phenomenal New York City public school teachers who, saw, who believed in me more than I even believed in myself. And so the question is, how do we attract talented teachers and support them well? We have to build incentives into how we approach the teaching profession. We have to have incentives to get people to come into challenging areas like secondary science and math, like special ed teachers, like bilingual teachers. Uh, we have to create career ladders so that folks can see ways that they can move up without leaving the classroom so that great teachers can coach their colleagues and uh, lead projects across their school and district. And this is what our international competitors that are outperforming us, this is what they do. If you go to Singapore, no matter the area, politicians, business leaders, military leaders, everybody will tell you the most important job in our society right. is the job of teacher. Is it going to take more money, Mr. Secretary, to make that happen? I mean, this is the this is sort of the never-ending the never-ending conversation when we when I and again, Christian Morath and I've talked for as long as he's been in this job about the importance of teachers. I always think to myself, you know, budgets are moral documents. They tell you about your values. If we value teachers this much and we value the importance of teachers as a contributor to this as much as we do, shouldn't we be putting more money into education to enable the paying of teachers at the level that would recruit, attract, and retain? 
I'll stipulate that it's not only money, but is but money is a big part of this, right? Money is for sure part of it, right? Only 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 folks who have a lot of money say money doesn't matter. If you have <laughs> if you have if you have no money, you are sure that money matters, right? So yes, money is important, but it is but it's but it's not just an afterthought to say that how you use it, how you spend it matters immensely. We've got to make sure that the resources are going, in particular to the highest needs kids. We know that there are lots of states that have seen a steady increase in their spending, but those dollars aren't getting to the most vulnerable students. Right. And then we've got to make sure that folks are accountable for using those dollars well. So it is important to evaluate teacher performance, to make sure that we're rewarding excellence. Right. right? That has to be a part of how we think about leveraging our dollars. We also have to invest in smart places Right now, we spend a ton on remediation when kids get or students get to higher ed behind. We spend a ton on remediation in our high schools and middle schools. We could save a lot by making smart investments in early learning. We know that kids who get high quality pre-K as three and four-year-olds do better in K-12, they do better in college, they do better in the workforce. So why wouldn't you put your money in the place that has the highest return? Yeah. I want to ask, before I ask Commissioner Marath a question that I know he will not want to answer, <laughs> heads up, I want to just observe for the person in the room running this for the festival, the little confidence monitor that's supposed to tell me the time actually says 72 degrees Fahrenheit, <laughs> <laughs> which I'm pretty sure is a useless thing to learn. So if somebody who is doing the venue can stand over there and kind of give me a Heidi sign when it's 15 minutes until the end, I would appreciate that. Commissioner Marath, if Secretary King is correct, and money matters, do you want to be on record advocating for more money in public education? So uh, the only people in public ed that I know who work for free are school board members. Everybody right. else is getting paid. Right. Um, so you'll never hear me say that money doesn't matter. Um, but um, I, again, as Secretary King said, it is not an inconsequential part of the conversation as to how you spend the money. Con consider the example of New York where he, um, where he hails from in Texas. Right. New York spends on a per pupil basis um, a little bit more than double what the state of Texas spends on a per pupil basis. And if you look at student outcomes by, co uh, by comparable groups, we beat them in virtually every category. Right, so if um, money were truly correlated to performance, that would not be the case. Uh, that's right, so there's, right. there is, a, um, uh, there is a, um, an issue in terms of how you organize the money. I think about school systems. Again, um, my, my time on the school board in Dallas, the overwhelming majority of our budget was devoted to teachers. Um, uh, but if our interest is how students perform, is, is getting better outcomes for our students, the question is, is, is that how we're compensating our teachers? Um, because if, if every teacher is paid essentially the same amount, um, regardless of the outcomes of students, regardless of the efficacy in the classroom, then every new dollar that we spend will go to sort of across the board raise, and the work that we were doing before is now, is now right. being done for more money. Um, than it was before. But in, if there is, in fact, a link between the salaries that our teachers make and the outcomes that our students receive, then incremental uh, infusions of money get tied to that incentive system and, and actually do drive outcomes up. And the answer to that, Commissioner, might not be more money, but it might mean moving money around from things that don't matter to things that do matter. Well, these are not necessarily mutually exclusive That's conversations, right. but yes. But I'm uh, thinking, you know, there's been a lot of talk, and I think people have not read below the headlines on this, but there's a lot of talk about this school district in South Texas that spent all this money on a water park, right? I am familiar. You are. Um, <laughs> 
there's a lot of criticism by some in the legislature and in state government in Texas about the efficiency of the use of the dollars that public ed is getting now. And the theory of the case there is if you want us to give you more money than you're getting now, demonstrate to us that you're spending the money we're giving you now wisely. That's a legitimate conversation to have going forward toward 2050. If we're gonna put more money into public education to build the education system of the future, we have to scrub waste, fraud, and abuse from the education system of the present. Well, I think, you know, there's, a, there's at present, there's a very vibrant uh, school finance conversation happening. Um, the School Finance Commission's been... Yes, as, we're continuing to talk. That's as, true. As, but the nature of the conversation for, for folks who are paying attention is really fundamentally different than anything that has preceded it. They're not... Uh, the conversations that are happening are not sort of minor Band-Aid formula adjustments, but they're talking about funding that um, would affect sort of systematic behavior in a way to drive outcomes up for kids. Yep. That kind of... Um, that kind of funding infusion, targeted uh, investment in areas where we know delivers better results for kids that could transform how teachers are paid so there's not an incentive to leave the classroom to get right. ahead, but in fact, you can stay a teacher and, and, and get ahead financially so that you can um, see, see expansions of what we know works. Um, you know, that's a, that is a very different kind of school finance conversation. So I, I'm, you know, I'm optimistic about the tenor and tone of those conversations that, that leading members of the legislature are having now right. um, uh, going into the next session. While I'm asking you questions you don't want to answer, let me, before I go to Commissioner Predis, ask you about the degree to which the state funds public education versus taxpayers. A lot of controversy on this subject as well, as well, you know. Persistent taxpayers, taxpayers fund all of it. Well, yes, but you know what I mean. Yeah, okay, the sorry. idea that the state's share of public education in the state budget has decreased over time and that property taxpayers in local communities are paying an increasing share of this. There is a huge you know, flaming bag on everybody's doorstep every time we talk about this because nobody wants a, you know, it's a big fight, it's a huge topic. Do you think that we need to go back to a time when more of the, of the percentage of public education funding is put back into the state budget and taken off of the backs of property taxpayers? It's a, I mean, it's, what you're talking about is actually not really a public education conversation, it's a tax policy Well, question. I'm looking at Donna Howard when I'm asking it because I figure <laughs> but it, you can just, you but can just get her is, up here and make her answer the question. It is fundamentally a tax okay, policy question. The, you know, the way the school finance system works in Texas is we have a, we have a rough target, let's call it um, $8,500 a kid. Right. Um, and we want to make sure that every student in Texas is given operational funding at a level of $8,500 a kid. And the system is set up that says, okay, collect your property taxes first. And if that only gets you to $5,000 per kid, then the state's going to give you we'll the rest. We'll put in the rest, right. And if, if, if you collect property taxes and you get more than $8,500 per kid, then we're going to take that um, and distribute it to other districts to bring them up to $8,500 a kid. That's The, the famous that's recapture, right. That's basically the system. So it's, it's property taxes first, and then it's, it's uh, everything else to get you up to $8,500 a kid. I'm asking you if you think we need to hit a, re a reset button on that. Well, I own a home in the Austin area, and I um, write a fairly substantial check for in terms of property taxes. Right. Um, but the, the 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 question is, if you're going to spend the same amount of aggregate money, it's still going to come from taxpayers. So which which particular form of taxation would you prefer? And again, that is not a question you want to ask your commissioner of education. What do I know about tax policy? But um, but that is a question I think of high interest right. to members of the legislature. Commissioner Prentiss, I'm gonna ask you the same version of that, or a different version of that same question. As you look ahead to 2050, does the higher ed funding system itself need an overhaul in that, rather than passing off the cost of higher ed increasingly onto families and students, the state should get back in the business of properly funding higher ed, and we'll need to properly fund higher ed to a greater degree going forward. I believe we need to fund uh, higher education higher levels, but I also think we need to hold higher education more accountable for the higher levels of funding we've been proposing for 
I think five sessions. Bill Hammond is sitting over there, and he, he's uh, been a supporter of this policy we propose. Right now, we fund universities almost entirely on the basis of their enrollments on the 12th day of class. What happens to students after the 12th class day has no material effect on the money they get from the state. And we've been proposing for years, in good conservative Republican fashion, that we should fund partially, at least, on the basis of results. So that we hold some of that money back and distribute it to universities on the basis of graduation outcomes. Our latest version of uh, performance-based funding would fund every graduate, every university would get a bonus of $500 for every graduate produced, and they would get a bonus of $1,000 for every at-risk graduate they produce. And that means generally low income, that means eligibility for free or reduced cost lunch in high school. We've been recommending policies like that for years without results, so we believe that we need to fund higher education higher levels, but hold higher education more accountable for the money that they receive. Do you worry, Commissioner, that if you begin to pay universities on the basis of the number of students they graduate, oh, they'll graduate more students, but they'll do it by lowering standards? Well, we hear that a lot, but there's, there's very little evidence that that's likely to occur. First Not of all, a legitimate concern. It's a legitimate concern, but I think we have a lot of very effective means of preventing that from occurring. For example, we have the best data collection system for higher education in the country. No state collects as much data as we do. If we have a university, university the Blue Bonded University, suddenly raises its graduation rates from 40% uh, of the senior class to 90%, we would go to that uh, university and talk to the president and, the academic leaders and say, these are amazing results. Uh, show us how you've done that. And we'd be able to, I think, detect if uh, there's been some right. lowering of standards. Uh, Secretary uh, King, uh, I want to know if you believe that technology is all that in terms of the future of education. We keep hearing, we heard a little bit today, that well, one of the ways in which technology is going to be a contributor to building the education system in the future is that we're gonna rely on technology more and more to help us connect kids to the opportunities they need in public and in higher education. You know, the, the, the flip side of that is, is that it's almost always, to some degree, hype. We heard a lot in Texas about how, um, you know, uh, virtual or remote educational opportunities were gonna be transformational, like. 10 years ago. I may not be as steeped in the details of this, but I feel like I'm still waiting for that to be the case. So how do we not get snowed by the hype that technology is gonna solve all of our problems going forward to 2050? It's a great question. I think ed tech has been vastly oversold in many places. Um, a lot of times when I visit classrooms, what I see is the same worksheet that students used to do on the desk is now turned vertically on a screen, but it's still the same worksheet. Not for, for 20 times the price. Exactly, right. exactly. Death by uh, smart board, right? That's it. Yeah, and so this there's whole industry has emerged to provide schools with tech tools they don't really need, that don't really benefit students, um, but folks are happy to collect the money from school districts. It's another place where there's not enough attention to outcomes, right? The, it's, the decision is based more on marketing 
than it is on student outcomes. Now, that said, I have also seen some amazing uses of technology. I'll describe three real quickly that I think are very promising. One is I, when I was commissioner in New York, I went to visit a small district. They were about to eliminate their world history AP class. Instead of eliminating it, they merged that class with four other districts in their region. Together, they could, they could populate that classroom and afford to pay for the teacher to teach through blended learning. The teacher was engaging with the students through technology every day in the classroom. Kids were able to do well in that AP class, use that to go on to college. Everybody won in that scenario. So that's one. Two, you want to really see the technology make a kind of learning possible that otherwise wouldn't be. I was in a classroom, Project Lead the Way classroom. Kids are learning computer-assisted design, pre-engineering skills in high school. If Mike and I were partners, we'd each be at our computer doing a design, on, our own design on the computer. Then we'd switch designs, go into the shop. I build Mike's, Mike builds mine. Right? That's powerful. That's performance-based assessment. That's immediate feedback on the quality of your design. Right? If your design is really good, then your partner ought to be able to build from the design. Very powerful. I was in another class. Uh, kids were in anatomy class. They were watching a knee replacement. It's really disgusting. Um, <laughs> they were watching a knee replacement live with a little camera inside the knee narrated by the surgeon. The surgeon finishes the surgery and then debriefs with students all over the country who are participating in this anatomy class. Right, that's technology making something possible that would right. not have been without it. Unfortunately, that is not what we're seeing. I, I think we have to make sure that districts feel accountable for how their tech dollars are used, and we have to change the incentives in the tech industry towards breakthrough learning outcomes instead of breakthrough sales. Uh, Commissioner Paredes, let me ask you about uh, different aspects of higher ed opportunity that exist in Texas today and what's likely to be the case going forward. I'm often uh, interested in the reaction of people when I go around Texas and talk about higher ed when I say more than 50% of the enrollment in higher education in Texas is in community colleges. You would be forgiven in a lot of parts of Texas for thinking that the only higher ed institutions in Texas are UT Austin and Texas A&M, right? <laughs> Not sure you understand how that works. Uh, community colleges are a huge part of the conversation and are likely to be a huger part of the conversation, are they not? I want you to talk about that, the difference between career and tech, community college, four-year, that balance going forward as we approach a much larger and much more diverse population. You're right that over 50% of students enrolled in higher education are in community colleges. Uh, community colleges have a much more difficult mission than universities do. First of all, they're open admission, so that means they have to do a lot of developmental or remedial education. Right. Next, they have the, the mission of, uh, of do providing workers in career and technical fields as well as uh, preparing students academically to transfer to universities. Uh, they, uh, they work with students from all kinds of different backgrounds, not only the 18 to 22-year-old typical college students of 20, 30 years ago, but they have older students. They have to find ways to arrange a curriculum in a way that's uh, accessible. It's an enormously difficult mission, but the fact is we need to do a lot better in terms of what community colleges achieve. 
uh, right now are completion rates for community colleges, and that means getting a, an associate's degree, a career certificate, or transferring to university are in the low 20s. Pretty low, right. That's not, that's not nearly good enough. Right. You know, I mean, I think about the challenge of, uh, I have a high school senior who is applying to the University of Texas and applying to schools out of state. And what I hear, and people in our situation hear all the time, is it is harder and harder to get into school today, public and private, than it has ever been. That all of us who went to school long ago would have a hard time, maybe not you, but would have a hard, <laughs> would have a hard time getting into the schools that we went to 25 and 30 years ago than we, than, we, than we do today, simply because admissions are that much more challenged. You know, every one of these campuses, Commissioner, is busting at the seams. If we're going to have double the population, if we're going to have double the number of higher ed enrollees, we're simply going to run out of campuses, right? So what do you, what do, you do as a practical matter about that? Well, we, in, in fact, we have, uh, we have a number of universities that have, that have plenty of room. Uh, community college enrollments have actually decreased uh, in the past uh, five, six years if we eliminate uh, the students who are taking dual credit. Do you think there's enough space in higher ed right now that does not, it doesn't concern you really as much as an issue going forward? No, I think uh, there are a lot of things that we can do to be much more cost efficient in higher education. I'm sure a lot of people have noticed in this room that uh, there aren't many classes on Friday anymore on university and college campuses. We need to make sure that our schools are operating uh, as fully as possible from uh, 7 in the morning till 10 o'clock at night. We ought to take advantage of weekend programs for those people who work 40 hours a week. We need to get more students to go to school year-round yep. so they can graduate in three years. Imagine the, the amount of money we would send, we would save in needed facilities if more students, let's say half of our students, attended school year-round. Yep. Well, I could say the same on the K-12 space. I mean, you think about our students Think about for a moment students in Highland Park, uh, where their poverty rate is 0.0%. Literally 0%. Yeah, yeah. and uh, you know, median household value is something like a million four. The, the, um, when those students graduate from Highland Park High School and go off to college, and they go to, a, say, an undergraduate engineering program and they look around, the, um, it's an amazing number of students that they see that were educated not in the United States, but educated um, in an Asian nation. Right, right. And when you think about why is that, it's because we go to school something like 180 days. We actually go to school on average 177 days in the United States and in Texas. Um, and in virtually every Asian country, it's between 204 and 240 days a year. So by the time an 18-year-old graduates from a school in Shanghai, a K-12 school in Shanghai, they will have more than a year and a half of additional math and science training. Because yes, we might enroll our kids in some kind of useful, interesting summer camp, or you know, if we're in Highland Park, I don't know, maybe we're summering in Nice. Yep. But the, um, <laughs> but the, uh, but we're wearing but a top many, hat and a monocle, but, right? Yeah, but, yeah. But, but how many, how many times? How many times are we putting our kids in math camp and science camp every summer from kindergarten through high school? And, and you think about this, the issue that, 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 that this calendar has. I mean, when the one constant that has existed in public education since about 1900 in this, uh, in this uh, country is we go to school 180 days. So you would, as Commissioner of Education, advocate for whether or not you could affect the outcome of this conversation more school days than we currently have? 
even if I remove my commissioner of education hat, I have uh, four kids, five and under. Um, we have uh, uh, three-month-old twins. Um, we're very blessed. And um, <laughs> uh, you know, you know, commissioner, you can't fix crazy. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I wish they had pulled me aside in middle school and told me how this happens. Um, <laughs> the, um, you're, you're living in the wrong state. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, you held the door open. Uh, I just walked the, in. Uh, <laughs> the, but you know, as a parent of a child in elementary school, yeah. like I would, I would find it extremely advantageous to have um, more instructional days available to me and my family. It would probably increase our level of sanity and save you babysitting. Uh -huh. That's it, right? Uh, Secretary King, I got the opportunity to go to Singapore with a bunch of folks in education and philanthropy two years ago, and we, in, we sought to understand how, at least in Singapore, their version of community college integrates with industry at a level that is transformational in terms of building workforce. Private sector is embedded with education. And I took away many things from that trip, but mostly I took away the fact that they have figured out how to get industry and education on the same page for the benefit of everybody. We don't do that very much here. Going forward, is the private sector going to have to be brought to the table more, particularly from the higher ed standpoint, but I would even say from a public ed standpoint, do we need to rethink the relationship between education and industry as we move toward 2050? Definitely. I mean, what you see in Singapore is that they were very concerned that they did not have a good plan for the bottom 25% of their students. So they just saw that they had this population of students for which they had terrible outcomes year over year. And what they decided to do was to think differently about how to support those students and to create, as you described, this public-private partnership around career readiness. And what they built is very impressive. The closest parallel, I would argue, that we have in the United States is a, a project that actually began with a partnership between IBM, New York City uh, Public Schools, and the City University of New York, but that's now being replicated all over the country, called P-TECH. And the idea was very simple. Students would graduate from high school with a high school diploma, an associate's degree, first in line for a job at IBM. And that program has now been replicated with a variety of business partners. The business partner helps the teachers to design the curriculum, so the curriculum lines up with the skills that students will need for the job. Uh, the faculty members of the higher ed institution are part of that curriculum development. The employers provide a mentor so that the students get a sense of what is possible for them. The original school was, a, was set up in a school that had been a failing high school in Brooklyn. And when you visit and talk with the kids, the kids will say, you know, I know what I want to do because I want the same car that my IBM mentor drives. <laughs> and I'm very clear that if I do this work, I can get to that destination. Whatever works, right? That, that's right. That's right. And what we found in New York when we were replicating this was we had more employers interested than we could accommodate because wherever I go in the country, state after state, what I hear from employers is that they can't find the employees they need. And it's at every level. It's the folks with BAs, but it's also folks with associates, folks even straight from high school with, with career credentials or career certificates. They can't find the supply of skilled workforce they need. 
the solution to that, I do think, is this closer partnership, like what Singapore is. Well, and, and what I would what I would echo, and that the largest expansion of P-Tech, this P-Tech model, is happening in Dallas right now, and it's been um, supported in no small part by the state legislature. It's actually an initiative championed by the lieutenant governor. So there's now a state financial incentive in Texas yep. to help convert campuses, high school campuses, to this P-Tech model. It's great. Okay, so I'm, I'm getting the sense from the back that we're about 15 away? Ish. Okay, so questions. I want to ask you to invite you to come up to the microphone. We'll bring you into this. Uh, naturally, Bill Hammond springs to his feet. <laughs> it's the microphone. At every education program I've ever done, the first question has been. Okay, I, I'm not allowed to, am I? Uh, one, please. Okay. Out of respect for Are, people here, we're going to go left, right, left, right. Commissioner right, Marath. Yes. In your new accountability system, nearly one million students are excluded from accountability based on the fact that they're moving around. Now, I can understand why that might be fair to adults, but it is fair to them. And then you've increased what I thought was the number of kids who are counted as, uh, you know, CCR, CCMR, from around 35 percent in recent What does that discussions. stand for? College, uh, career, military. College, career. College, career, military ready. From yeah. around 35 percent to 55 percent. And then you said, so the average is 55 percent of the graduates. In order to get an A, you only have to get 60 percent of your kids to CCMR. It seems like you took an opportunity and watered it down substantially, with the result being the schools are graded much higher than the actual results would indicate. Address it and also, if you would, connect the idea of accountability going forward Absolutely. to yeah. this so, conversation. So there's a huge amount of mobility in the state of Texas, has been historically. In order, to, um, in order for the system to count as a student as part of a campus's accountability, they have to be there on roughly October 15th, and then they have to take a test there at the end of the year. Um, and that's been the same um, rule in Texas for uh, as long as I've been paying attention. Um, and so um, there, is a, there is a grand question about um, how do we modify the accountability system ensure, to ensure that even students who are, say, moving every three months to chase rent deals are, are, are part of a, a campus's accountability system. So that, that's certainly a, a policy area um, worthy of, of um, further attention. The, um, the legislative framework for A through F set uh, a variety of uh, characteristics for what, um, what constitutes college, career, or military readiness. One of them is having a good score on the SAT. One is having a good score on the ACT. But Texas has also created its own version of the SAT called the TSIA, um, which the majority of our students take, um, which I believe if they score high on, they're guaranteed admission into, um, uh, or at least they're guaranteed credit-bearing coursework. And the overwhelming majority of students in, in Texas who are deemed college-ready actually are deemed college-ready on that assessment instrument. Beyond that, I thought there's- CTE was the driver for the increase. No, it had a very small factor. CTs uh, like five or six percent or something like that. It, may, it might be a little bit higher than that. But there's um, there's a, a series of CTE based. Uh, this is career and technical, career and technical uh, based right, right. credentials. So these are industry based credentials like AWS welding, NCER um, sort of construction and plumbing. A very small percentage of students receive those industry based credentials. And then for one year only, we provided half credit for students who take a coherent sequence in that. Um, in that uh, coursework, but who have not sat for the exam in order to give schools the time to get kids to, um, uh, to, to take the certification. So the, the largest bump um, that occurs in the area of college readiness is evaluating students who take the newly available TSIA. Okay, Dustin. Yeah, I have three questions. Amanda, the Secretary, but the group. Uh, so the Department of Ed had piloted a program for uh, Pell, uh, 
for dual credit students. And so I'd be interested to hear your thoughts and the group's thoughts on need-based financial aid for dual credit for students who are still in high school. Because affordability, I mean, the reality mm -hmm. is affordability is something we have not talked about, but affordability is no, going to be no less of a problem. Is it not, Secretary, going forward? That's right. That's right. So the hope of these dual credit programs is that if you have a high school student who's able to get those credits funded by the federal government or by the state before they leave, they're going to be better positioned when they get to college. They will right. end up spending less ultimately on their college education, hopefully graduate earlier. Um, I'm excited about the, the dual enrollment program. The challenge that we see, and I, I know there are, there are lots of schools in Texas that have very high quality dual enrollment programs, but there are also reality is around the country some very low quality dual enrollment programs. A lot depends on whether the students are actually getting taught by a college faculty member, college level work with college level assignments at the end, including the final exam and the final project, or and unfortunately what some school districts do is they work out a deal with the community college the teacher becomes an adjunct at the community college, teaches the same course they were teaching at the high school, but now it's called a community college course. Students are still doing high school level work, and it's not making them any better prepared for college. And so part of what my hope is for this dual enrollment pilot project that we, that we launched in the Obama administration is that we will get to some evidence of what high quality parameters look like for those dual enrollment programs, particularly serving the students who are most vulnerable, low-income students, first-generation students. Thank you. Joanne. On the issue of, of college readiness and military and job readiness, I don't hear any conversation about critical thinking skills, and yet across industry and across the question of, of a democracy that, that needs to survive, that seems to be the common thread uh, for all of the panelists. How are you addressing that? Commissioner Paredes, what do you think about the need for critical thinking skills, and are we doing a good enough job in enabling that ha to happen in Texas? Well, obviously, the development of critical thinking skills is important to anybody's uh, educational experience, and clearly we know from talking to any number of uh, employers, uh, Mike and I, along with uh, Andres Alcantara, the chairman of the Texas Workforce Commission, had eight regional meetings which we talked to business leaders and recurrently we heard critical thinking skills. A couple of points about that. Not everybody defines critical thinking skills the same way. Uh, and uh, we know that uh, critical thinking skills should be embedded in most coursework. We have uh, learning outcomes in place for the core curriculum of Texas, which are the 42 lower division hours you need to take to graduate. Uh, critical thinking skills are embedded in those. Our college readiness standards refer to critical thinking skills time and time again. We're doing everything we can to, uh, at I think, the statewide level to promote the teaching of critical thinking skills. But unless you have ethnographers in every classroom monitoring that phenomenon, it's, it's hard to say if we're doing as well as we should. Sir. Hi. So this question is for Dr. King and Commissioner Marath. Um, so over the summer, the Texas legislature, legislature has discussed school safety and uh, mental health programs and personnel have become a highlight of those conversations. So what role do you see mental health programs and per personnel in Texas schools uh, contributing to those outcomes that you're all talking about? Sure. Commissioner. 
so one of the things that we've asked for, um, so every, every biennium before the legislative session, they ask the heads of agencies to give them a budget request. And this particular um, biennium, we asked for an extra $50 million to begin to stand up capacity to help um, uh, school districts with the task of, one, identifying specific needs. Think of sort of um, uh, tiering the kind of mental health risks that um, exist and then also sort of mapping um, and connecting the school to uh, resources in the community, whether it's a private family a practitioner, um, a light, an LSSP, that sort of thing. And so ensuring that, because a lot of the mental health resources that exist in Texas exist outside of schools, but, um, and then of course we have uh, the critical role that counselors play in schools. Assuming that the school is, uh, is positioned to be a robust um, hub in that network and and properly facilitate referrals is pretty is pretty critical. So um, we're we're focused on it's a, a matter of high legislative interest and to try to um, increase our capacity to support our students in that way. I, I would also say that part of it is is curricular supports, um, helping make sure that our schools reinforce um, you know this idea for all of us to love one another. This is uh, I think actually part of the um, part of the process as well. Yeah, the two, two things I would add to that, and I'm certainly biased. My mom was a school counselor. School counselors have a critically important role to play, and in too many schools, they have an absurd student load, so they can't actually serve students very well. So if you've got a ratio of one counselor to 500 students, 600 students, how helpful are they going to be able to be to, to those students? So the, 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 the school counselor role is critical. Um, but the second piece I would say, just to build on Mike's point about curricular support, really got to build into teacher training and teacher preparation, preparation to develop students' socio-emotional skills. We've got to build in having a trauma-informed approach to the classroom so that when you're working with students, we have a lot of students who've experienced trauma. There are strategies to help them learn to manage their emotions, help them learn to be successful. Uh, teachers need that training in their preparation. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm still getting the temperature, which again is a, a wonderful data point. Uh, how are we on? How are we on time? Five minutes. Great. Question, sir. Uh, I teach government in a community college in Dallas, and uh, also all this is very personal to me. Uh, and the the influx of high school students into my classes, into and and they're even less well prepared now than they were five years ago. And uh, the quality materials and the the expensive materials. And I, uh, Texas Tribune and Pearson have got a great new program that we're really excited about. Uh, but my question is, so many of our students are taught by adjunct faculty. And by adjunct faculty? Adjunct faculty, right. Uh, we have probably two-thirds of our students or more are taught by adjunct faculty. Uh, those adjuncts are harried trying to make a living. And I'm wondering if there's any movement in the uh, possibly at the, at the legislator, legislature or something that you could suggest to, to include adjuncts better in kinds of uh, TRS and the other kinds of programs that we full-time faculty have access to. And if adjuncts could get more of that stuff, they would uh, have better lives, be able to focus more on their students, and we'd all be better off. Of course, presumably, Commissioner Predis, that's going to come at a cost, right? If you incorporate adjuncts into the, the system in the way that I'm hearing, yes. it's going to have a cost. Unfortunately, the, uh, the role of adjuncts has been to help uh, reduce or uh, keep down uh, the rising cost of higher education. Uh, I think it's unlikely. At the expense of the students. Well, I, I don't know if students suffer. I haven't, seen, I haven't seen any data that suggests that students taught by an adjunct faculty member are less well prepared than those that are taught by permanent faculty. I think that the pain is 
is suffered by the teachers, by the adjunct faculty. Um, there's, there's, a, there's nobody with any kind of leadership role in higher education who isn't aware of this problem. And I don't know of anybody who has a solution to it. Because uh, or the only solution would be much higher levels of uh, support for higher education so that you could pay adjunct faculty more, provide benefits and so forth. But I don't see anything on the horizon that suggests that will happen. Ma'am. Hi, I'm Anna Gu. I am a master's student at the um, LBJ School, and I used to work at TA, so hi, Commissioner Rath. Um, my question is, so in education, there's a lot of media coverage. You don't always necessarily get to pick what you're talking about. Um, I'm curious about if there is some topic that you wish there was more attention to that you'd like to shine a spotlight on for any of you. I'll tell you one. So in the mid-'90s, uh, Congress banned access to Pell Grants for folks who are incarcerated. The result was programs in prisons all over the country closed. Th this policy makes literally no sense. The, the folks who are incarcerated who get access to any educational program at all are 43% less likely to return to prison. Uh, we started a pilot project with 69 colleges and universities, including some in Texas, um, where students can now use Pell Grants uh, while incarcerated to get, ed to get education so that when they come back to the community as the overwhelming majority of folks who are incarcerated will, they have a better shot at being able to be successful. Um, now the task is to, I believe, expand that beyond this experiment to, to restore Pell access for folks who are incarcerated. It's one of those rare issues in DC that has genuine bipartisan support uh, but there isn't enough conversation about it. And to me, it's a critical partner to the other things we're doing around criminal justice reform in Texas and around the well, country. Well, I was going to say, isn't the way at this not through the education door, but the criminal justice reform door, since that is one of the rare bipartisan issues out in the world these days? That's right. And I think what we have to convince people is that part of criminal justice reform isn't just shorter sentences, right? It's actually making sure that folks who are sentenced have access to education and job training so that they don't end up reoffending and end up back in prison. Okay. Commissioner Morath, is there one issue you would identify that we should be talking about more that we're not? Well, we are, in fact, talking about this issue, but um, it's it far and away is the most important issue, and it's, I mean, it's this issue of teaching. Um, it's what how we support the teaching profession generally. Um, uh, can we create pathways for these professionals to make six figures? Um, I believe we can. Can we? Um, uh, engage in the preparation practices of these professionals on, on the same order that we do in, with medical professions, uh, professionals. Um, uh, you know, can we, um, uh, you know, uh, reorganize our systems um, uh, to empower educators um, to lead to lead our kids more effectively so that they can celebrate themselves, turn our schools into teaching hospitals, as it were. Um, uh, uh, to to lead uh, lead the future of the teaching profession. I mean, uh, we, uh, you know, we've, we we again we are, we arrived at a place in this country where we sort of blame teachers for all of the problems of America, um, and um, you know the starting wage for a teacher in Texas uh, coming out of um, school is going to be the high 40s, low 50s, depending upon where they are. Um, which is not a bad starting wage for somebody with a bachelor's degree, but you spend 60 hours a week working, you spend your personal money on your kids, you come home crying about some story a, a kid told you uh, because you're you know, dealing with little humans, and um, 10 years later, you're now making like $5,000 more. 
um, and all of your friends who chose a different career path, real estate, investment banking, you name it, they're all making twenty, thirty thousand dollars a year more or more. And, um, and so we've, we've clearly got to address the issue of, of how we support teachers, both compensation and working conditions. Commissioner Predis, let me ask you as we close, I'm afraid for the people online, this is unfortunately where we're going to have to end. Commissioner Predis, is there one issue in higher ed we've not been talking about? We should be talking. I, I think the issue that we, we're not talking about is how we fund higher education properly, including performance base metrics. That needs to be the conversation we have in the next session and beyond. I think so. As we work toward 2050. I love a good education conversation more than almost anything. And we had a great one today. Please welcome, uh, please th thank you, say thank you to Secretary King, Commissioner Morath, and Commissioner Paredes. That was a test for the new Texas, recorded live at St. David's Episcopal Church in Austin as part of the 2018 Texas Tribune Festival. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Conversations with the Texas Tribune. Visit texastribune.org events for more information about our public interviews. And if you like what you heard on this podcast, please be sure to rate us as awesome on iTunes and tell your friends about us. Until next time, this is Evan Smith.